need the Commonwealth and the states to agree that they're actually going to delegate that to some regional management bodies. So what? So what's happened is the Commonwealth and the state policies have developed separately, mm. as as if in silos. And that's unusual. <laughs> that's unusual. <laughs> and the reality is, as Hal is saying, somehow we've got them. We've got to have them getting to work together. Yeah. And and that involves a number of steps. One is agreement to work together and agreement about what they're trying to achieve, <laughs> which is the sort of the framework policy document. But then you've got to have where is that working together actually going to play out? Mm. And we've suggested, as Hal has said, at the area level. Welcome to the Grattan Report podcast. You're with Megan from the Grattan Institute, and today we're discussing primary care in Australia. Each year, more than 20 million Australians see GPs, pharmacists, dentists, and other primary care practitioners. These frontline services are usually our first point of contact with the health system, and strong primary care is central to an efficient, equitable, and effective health system. And while Australia has good quality primary care by international standards, it can and should be better. Grattan's newest report, Mapping Primary Care in Australia, traces the relationships of our frontline services with other specialist community-based services, discusses the key policy issues facing primary care, and suggests some options to address them. Joining us today to talk through this new report is Health Program Director Stephen Duckett and fellow Hal Swearison. Welcome, Hal. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks, Megan. Thanks, Megan. It's great to be here. So um, just to start us off, why is a mapping study of primary care important? So basically, the, the information we have about primary care is all over the place. Some is held on about GPs in some places, some is held about nurses in other places, some is held about pharmacists in other places. And what we thought is it's very useful to have an overall picture, bringing it all together to show that primary care isn't just about GPs, primary care isn't just about pharmacies. Primary care is is a a whole host of uh, services provided by many professionals that need to be looked at as a whole. Mm -hmm. And so who is responsible for the organisation and funding of primary care services in Australia? Well, it's it's mixed. Uh, So both the Commonwealth and the states are responsible for um, primary care in in practice. Uh, The Commonwealth and the states have decided between them that the Commonwealth should actually be the uh, the principal uh, level of government responsible for primary care, but really what the Commonwealth is responsible for is primary medical care. And the reason that that has happened is because the Commonwealth has the major funding responsibility for Medicare and the pharmaceutical benefits scheme. And so it's really been more a pragmatic decision than um, uh, than, a, than a principled one. And uh, in effect... Uh, the states continue to run a range of services, including uh, community mental health, uh, community health services, women's health services, uh, and so on, maternal and child health services. Uh, and um, in practice, you have two levels of government who are running um, primary care services in Australia. And the, the problem with that, Megan, is that there's an old aphorism that says, where you stand depends upon where you sit. It's a policy about policy, and mm-hmm. and because the Commonwealth is principally, it, it sees the primary care world principally through the lens of general practice, which essentially it funds, and to a lesser extent through the pharmaceutical benefits scheme. So, it almost inevitably 
when it's making policy about uh, primary care, it thinks of primary care principally as primary medical care. Mm. And it is so much bigger than that, and that's what we're trying to show in this mapping report. Yeah, and the other, the other thing um, that's important to recognise is that uh, there's a the primary care is often thought about as uh, the first point of contact in the healthcare system and the gateway to healthcare. And uh, 50 or 60 years ago, uh, the, it was actually mainly GPs um, who were the, the primary care part of the the, um, the health system. But the reality is that there's been this enormous change uh, over two generations. So uh, we've seen deinstitutionalisation of um, services for people with disabilities and for mental health. We've seen a range of aged care services uh, now provided in the community. And we've seen an expansion, a dramatic expansion of community-based services. So primary care is now part of not just primary care services as it was conceptualised uh, two generations ago, but it's part of a whole complex set of uh, both primary and specialist community care services. And that makes the complexity much higher than it has been in the past. So just to simplify it up a little bit, what, what's the most important primary care services? Well, that, that's uh, the, the reality is for most people it's, it's, it is general practice and pharmacy. Mm. Most people see a general practitioner each year and just about everybody in the community uses a pharmacist um, during the year. Uh, so they're, they're really important for the general population, but, the, but, but for about 20% of the population who have very high needs, and these people tend to be older and, uh, and, and, and frail, or people who've got special needs in the community, people with mental illness and so on, or people with disabilities, um, there are a range of services that they need to come together. And that obviously includes general practice, but it also includes home and community care services, alcohol and drug services, mental health services, and so on. And these have to come together. And that's a huge difference to what happened two or three generations ago, where basically the family was the community-based support system mm. or it was institutional care. Now we increasingly think that we want people to be supported at home and age in place, uh, be able to live in the community and have those services. So for that high needs group, mm. um, there's a range of services which come together. For the general population, it is pharmacy and general practice. Mm -hmm. So you've, you've mentioned uh, that some of these services seem to be mainly funded um, by state governments. Mm -hmm. um, what are these services and how are they different from Commonwealth-funded services? So basically the Commonwealth is, is responsible for Medicare and the Pharmaceutical Benefit Scheme. So under Medicare, the Commonwealth, the, the, the vast bulk of the primary care funding for the Commonwealth under Medicare is general practice. So it's general practitioners and people employed in a general practice, such as nurses and so on. Even your kind of front of house staff? Front of house staff yep. and so on. Mm -hmm. So, and then in the last uh, couple of decades, they've added on access to physiotherapists and um, podiatrists and psychologists on referral from general practice if there's a, a plan in place for, for what those people will do. So that's what the Commonwealth funds. Mm. The state funds more or less everything else. So community mental health services are state funded. Uh, dental services that, that are in the public sector are essentially state funded. Uh, community nursing, uh, some community nursing is funded by the Commonwealth under the aged care arrangements, but if it's uh, post-acute services, uh, out of hospital services, uh, 
that's essentially funded by the state. So there's, uh, and community palliative care is essentially uh, state funded. So there's a range of things which are state funded and they don't fit well together. Right. You've, you've talked about we've got the primary care services and then there are these specialist community services. So what are the main specialist community service and services and how are they different to well, our primary care services? Uh, well, the, the, the most probably most people would think about specialist community services as um, specialist medical services, so the range of those. So obviously on referral from a GP, people access specialist medical services. And they're Medicare funded. Um, so that's things like x-rays and that sort of thing? Or? The, well, it splits a couple of ways. One is um, we have uh, essentially pathology and radiology services. Sure. So that's um, x-rays and, mm-hmm. um, and blood tests. And then uh, there are physician's services. So that um, if you need a dermatologist or a... Mm. Or a um, uh, a, uh, a gynaecologist, or even uh, psychologists, or uh, psychologists aren't. Uh, yes, they're they're a specialist allied health service. So mm-hmm. they're, as Stephen said earlier, that they are available. So that's the range of Medicare funded services. Then there are a range of specialist state services, which are the community mental health services and the alcohol and drug services. Often they'll be on referral from a GP, but you don't necessarily have to have a referral from a GP to access those services. Um, Another thing that's important about those state services as opposed to the common services, the Medicare services are essentially uncapped. That is, there's no budget limit on it. They, the, the number of services is determined by the demand that is there for those services. But wow. state-funded services are largely capped. So mm. what that tends to mean is that for state-funded services, um, if the budget runs out, then essentially what happens is people have to wait. Wow. And um, that's particularly a problem for services like uh, dental services. Right. Uh, so public dental services in, in, are um, uh, you know, an issue. Um, the um, the, uh, the state-funded services um, are also uh, run largely through either non-government agencies or directly by the state themselves, whereas the Commonwealth-funded services tend to be in the private sector. They tend to be private medical practitioners, private GPs and private allied health services and pharmacies. Mm. You mentioned their dental services, which do seem to be funded quite differently. Mm. Why is that and and how big of a problem is it? Why is it a problem? Well, more than half of um, all dental uh, services are paid for by people themselves. Mm. Um, And if you add in uh, private health insurance, then the vast majority of the cost of dental services is borne by individuals. Um, Whereas just about every other service is um, largely funded through um, the state, really, Mm. through through either the Commonwealth or the state. And uh, the effect of that is that... um, for people who are relatively well off, um, they access dental services without uh, major barriers to cost. But even for them, about 20% of people will say that uh, they delay or defer or don't go to dental services because of cost. I haven't well, been to a dentist in seven years. Well, that's not good, <laughs> Megan. I know. It's costly <laughs> there, though, isn't there it? Will be, that's right. Well, well, the effect of it is that yeah. about a third of people have... Um, have uh, untreated uh, dental disease, caries mm. and so on. The, but it's particularly a cost uh, problem for people on low income. So about 40% of people on low incomes delay or don't go to a dentist because they um, see cost as being a major issue. So that's a huge issue for um, Australia. Now, why has that happened? Yeah. 
When the original Medicare uh, and pharmaceutical benefit scheme debates occurred, um, pharmaceutical benefits was a bit earlier than Medicare, but the during particularly the Whitlam government and then during the Hawke government, dental services didn't get included. Uh, so effectively, we've always had dental services excluded outside. And now the problem is that to bring them in mm. is expensive. It's mm. costly to bring them in. So governments have struggled with the cost issue in, and there have been a number of inquiries and attempts to try and deal with this, um, introducing schemes of various sorts. But effectively, uh, there's a split between public dental on the one hand and slightly subsidised Commonwealth dentis- dental services on the other. Um, and the net result of that is still that there are enormous uh, inequities of access mm. to dental services in Australia. It seems so strange. I mean, surely fixing your teeth is as important as setting a broken bone or uh, having your um, eyesight corrected. And, the, and what, uh, what happens in, in the worst case, that people get admitted to hospital for these, these mm. things and uh, cost a lot of money through mm. hospital admissions for dental care. Mm. So. It's still for kids. It's ki- kids. It's um, it's one of the major reasons that people that children have a general anaesthetic is to um, wow. is to have teeth removed because it's difficult to deal with a, a with a, a small child that uh, has major dental caries um, in uh, in an outpatient setting. Yeah. Um, so. You know, it's a significant issue, yeah. and and it's probably, if you look at the access issues in Australia, it's the most significant general access issue for services mm. uh, in primary care. And I mean, you could look at it more broadly in the way that it affects, um, you know, people who are from a lower SES mm. background. It would make it harder to get a job, you know, through pain and through potentially, you know, Cosmetic, cosmetically. Yeah, yeah. So it's quite a big issue, really. It is. Isn't it? It's a really significant issue, and it varies enormously from one state to another. So in some mm. states, I think Tasmania, the waiting list um, at the at the worst case had blown out to nearly three years. Mm. Um, so you could wait for you know two or three years to get access to public dental services. So that that had gone uh, that hadn't gone very well. Mm. Um, but even in in the better states, it's still you know heading towards um, you know a year um, to get access to. Um, to services, so this is this is a very significant um, problem which mm. we haven't yet dealt with, and as you say, it has real health consequences and real social consequences mm. for people. Absolutely. Um, who are the highest users of primary care services? Are there any issues for those high users? Well, basically, uh, all healthcare use increases with age. Sure. And in the case of primary care, it's both the age and also what's called multimorbidity, people who have multiple things wrong with them, like uh, breathing problems and heart problems, for mm. example. And and so it's these uh, small, relatively small proportion um, of, of people who have disproportionately high uh, use of general practice services and of other primary care services. Now, when I say disproportionately high, I meant uh, with respect to their proportion of the population, mm-hmm. but may not be res- disproportionate when you reflect on their need, and their need is obviously much higher because of the uh, the multi- multi-morbidity, the, n- the number of diseases they've got. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and how do these, does this particular subset of people have particular issues with their use of primary care? Um, yes, they, they do. So often these are people who've got, uh, so to give it to, to make that um, a, a bit more specific, the, the, the major more, uh, conditions that people have are things like diabetes and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and heart disease. 
There are also um, people who are living in the community with um, dementia and cancer and so on. You get the general flavour that these are serious conditions which need um, uh, medical care, they often need allied health support, occupational therapy to uh, help them to modify their homes. Um, they, they may need uh, nursing services at home or home care services and so on. So that the very significant um, set of issues that are there are getting coordination between services. Mm. Also, you end up with people often having um, services from two or three specialists at the same time. So they might be um, getting services for, from a respiratory physician, um, an endocrinologist and a cardiologist um, all at the same time. And so the coordination issues become really significant for them because the, you can get drug interactions, you can get mm. different care plans going at the same time. You have uh, allied health professionals doing um, uh, a set of things which need to be brought together with the medical issues and the drug issues. Uh, and then on top of that, you get what's called acute on chronic episodes. So people might have an acute exacerbation. They might have a respiratory um, episode where they become breathless and they need um, uh, oxygen and they need care or they might become um, dehydrated and they need to be looked after at home. And those things need to be caught early. Otherwise, people end up in hospital mm-hmm. um, and, um, getting un- and using unnecessarily intensive services that might not be the best way to go. Often you'll get with multiple um, conditions like that, you'll get multiple assessments and diagnostic procedures going on. If you don't bring those together in a coordinated way, then that becomes inefficient. Um, so there are a range of issues for those people. And when someone is in a hospital, you can see that that might be managed because everybody's in the one place. There are one set of systems. Um, there are uh, team-based organisational arrangements in place. When it's in the community, it's much more complicated because you have people in different places trying to work together. And so we needed a better way of bringing that all together than what we've currently got. Mm. So you've mentioned in the report that uh, primary care is a renovator's opportunity. What what does that mean, Stephen? Well, there. What's interesting is that general practice is evolving, uh, and so is pharmaceutical and pharmacies, for that matter. But you know, fifty or a hundred years ago, general practice was an isolated, single general practitioner working in their own practice owned by themselves. They're also what were called lodge practices, but they've disappeared. So what's happened over time is this private, privately owned practice model, relatively uncoordinated with everything else that's going on in the community, has continued to dominate. What's changed is instead of an individual doctor owning their own individual practice and practicing it as a solo GP, there's now much more corporate ownership where a listed company on the stock exchange might own hundreds and hundreds of general practices and they might employ each of those general practices might have five, six or seven general practitioners in them. But they're still individual general practices uh, and not connected to the physios, the OTs, the pharmacies, the nurses that are that are all around them. And as Hal has said, as we have increasing number of people with these uh, heart disease and, and lung disease and so on, we need to manage that involving a number of different health professionals. So this organisation um, uh, arrangements in the community really haven't kept pace with what we actually are needing in terms of 
services supply. Mm. And simultaneously, either causing that or associated with it, uh, the funding arrangements are still locked into primarily rewarding general practice for seeing a lot of individual consultations rather than any other form of payment, which might, for example, encourage them to look after all of the care of a person with diabetes for a 12-month period, for example. So both the organisational arrangements and the financing arrangements are sort of haven't adapted enough to the changed epidemiology that's out there. Now, to be fair, governments over the last 20 or 30 years have introduced organisations which are supposed to, inverted commas, coordinate what goes on in primary care. They used to be called divisions of general practice, then they were called Medicare locals, and they're now called primary health networks or PHNs. And these have been given this huge remit of trying to work out how this is all in, in this primary care system in any given region is, is somehow going to come together with none of the funding levers or authorities to do that. But, you know, we've got this rhetoric about coordination without any real delivery on the ground. Mm. Mm. So, so, and that's right. So, so part of the issue, I think, then that it's it's you know it's not possible for for general practitioners and individual general practices to sort this out on their own, and and it's we it's unreasonable and unfair to blame them for what's happened. It's, mm. they're, they're not to blame for this. Um, they they do as good a job as they can in the circumstances. What really needs to happen is the Commonwealth and the states need to come together and recognise that this is a major set of issues and they need to come to a new set of arrangements to try and address these issues. And this, the sort of structures that Stephen's talking about, the PHNs and the Medicare locals and the, general, uh, the divisions of general practice, are a good idea in principle, but they've always been under... Uh, underdone, they, they haven't had the authority to really start to manage through these um, sets of arrangements. And without the Commonwealth and the states agreeing that this is a major set of issues that have to be addressed, both for, this, for, the, for the, the sorts of complexities that we've been talking about in terms of the patient needs and so on and the access issues that are there, and including things like dental, mm-hmm. um, and for the, the cost issues which are there. Because when general practice and primary care and these services in the community don't work, then the only solution is for people to be admitted to an institutional environment where we can provide whole um, off-person care. Mm. So they then end up in a nursing home or they end up in a hospital or they end up in a, an institutional environment for people with mental illness or um, uh, for people Disability. with disabilities. Mm. Um, and that's much more costly than providing care in the community. And people actually prefer to have the care provided in the community. Mm. So you need governments to come together to say, well, there needs to be a responsible authority at the local level which actually brings this together. So then what should what should the main policy priorities be for these Australian governments? Well, I, I, we've argued in our report that um, one of the things that should happen is that um, then there should be a national policy um, framework developed and we think some of the elements that that should be in that national policy framework are um, agreements between Commonwealth and state governments about primary care which are programmatic which are you know which actually address the issues we've been talking about and sit down and say okay well we need to sort out these funding issues and the performance management issues and the data issues and so on at a systemic level Mm -hmm. so that we can then deal with how things are coordinated and so on. And we think at the moment that that probably the best option is for there to be agreements between 
Commonwealth and state governments, which include these primary health networks as um, the Commonwealth's part of the um, arrangements to help to set in place these system coordination issues through uh, managing money and uh, information data and by working with the practitioners, the GPs, the pharmacists and everybody else in the system to start to bring things together in an area-based approach. There are other ways that this could be done and in internationally it is done in other ways. Um, uh, but in Australia that's probably a geographically area-based approach to planning, coordination, using money and data is probably the way you want to go and you need the Commonwealth and the states to agree that they're actually going to delegate that to some regional management bodies. So what? So what's happened is the Commonwealth and the state policies have developed separately, mm. as as if in silos. And that's unusual. <laughs> that's unusual. <laughs> and the reality is, as Hal is saying, somehow we've got them. We've got to have them getting to work together. Yeah. And and that involves a number of steps. One is agreement to work together and agreement about what they're trying to achieve, <laughs> which is the sort of the framework policy document. But then you've got to have where is that working together actually going to play out? Mm. And we've suggested, as Hal has said, at the area level, and that the at the moment there are these organisations called PHNs, primary health networks, and they're seen as creatures of the Commonwealth, but they are in fact local organisations with local accountability. And so our view is that they might find they might be a good place to start to get the the, the Commonwealth programs and state programs to work more closely together. And the third element that you need is a bit of data. Mm. So we don't really know much about what's going on in primary health care, and so we ought to have better data, which the PHNs can then use to actually provide feedback to general practitioners and physios and everybody else about what's happening, what they're doing, how they're doing things differently from everybody else, and also to begin to understand where the gaps in services are and where the needs are. So these things all have to happen together, um, but it means uh, both the Commonwealth and the states agreeing that this is what they should be working on. Mm. And, in, and, in, and I think that's right. And, in, and if you throw your mind forward a bit and think, well, what might that look like? What, what are we trying to achieve here? I, I think in, in to the future, what, what we probably want to see in the community is much more um, uh, capability to support people at home with um, chronic and complex um, uh, conditions. So that means... Um, being able to respond quickly and in an after-hours sense and in a way where services come together, nursing services, allied health services, medical services, pharmaceutical services and so on, so that people have confidence that that, that, that service can be provided. We also probably want to see some of these access issues that we've been talking about um, improve, so particularly things like dental. Mm, um, absolutely. That needs to be... Address, but there are some other issues as well. Um, co-payments for specialists, co-payments for allied health services are high, mm. and so those things we would like to see. I think the community would like to see those addressed in the future. And then the great, the area that we haven't talked much about today, um, which I think uh, there's enormous potential, is for a much greater emphasis on prevention and early intervention um, in primary care. Uh, it would be possible for competent organisations to work with schools and with um, workplaces and with community organisations to start to shift the emphasis towards um, people being healthier, to mm. uh, dealing with social 
issues that lead to health problems, but also to some of the risk factors which are there. Um, we know that there are huge issues. We, you know, people are very concerned about things like obesity, mm. um, and we know that um, we can work with community groups and so on to start addressing those sorts of issues. But there are a number of other issues: teenage pregnancy, there are um, alcohol and drug issues, there's violence issues, and mm. so on. And if you have competent primary care organisations which work well with other community organisations not in the health sector, you can really make a difference on those in that sort of front. But at the moment, we haven't got a very organised approach to that. So that's what the future might look like if we can have a a more organised, regionalised approach with proper authority, money, data and so on and start to deal with this instead of the current fragmented sets of arrangements that we have in place. Well, look, banks get into schools with their credit cards, so mm. surely health organisations can get in with their health plans. We would hope so. <laughs> Wouldn't you? So. You'd hope so. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for your time today, Hal and Stephen. I, I do hope we see some renovations underway soon. Um, to download a copy of the full report we've discussed today, head to our website, grattan.edu.au. And as always, you can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news reports and events by subscribing to our Twitter, at Grattan Inst, or you can follow Stephen on Twitter, at Stephen J. Duckett. Or Hal. At H. Swearison. Or you can follow um, Grattan on Facebook at Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.